Let's take it back to Vegas on my 22nd at the Palms, got a call. My life was being threatened by a pimp. He ain't know I'm in the room with 20 goons and Jay Prince. Now I'm pissed. Y'all done made me talk my shit I was chillin', now I'm back to being a villain in this bitch 2012 came to flex, now this is part two Fuck with me in part three, might be about you Okay, welcome to this episode of Political-ish um, I'm here with someone that I ha- I gotta tell you I have been looking forward to this um, episode for a very, very long time And it it's really a hard episode for me to do And the reason is because the more I prepare, prepared for this um, the more I realized how much there was to talk about with this gentleman. So we're here with Yoan Grio, who is maybe the foremost journalist on the narco state in South America, Mexico, South Central America, and South America. Um, he is everywhere. Um, you can see him on a number of podcasts and giving speeches to in any number of colleges um, across the world. Um, he's also a, a great best-selling author um, of El Narco, Gangster Warlords, and his brand new book, Blood Gun Money. Um, been living in Latin America since 2001, um, originally from Brighton, England, which I have some questions about Brighton. That's an interesting, you know, you should do a story about Brighton. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But uh, we're here with Yoan Grio. Uh, Yoan, it's a it's a uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm honored. Honestly, I've seen you on so many other shows which are much bigger than mine. And um, the fact that you're on here really to me is an honor because this is a, a very, very important topic. And I don't think there's anyone in the world who is more of an expert on this than you. So thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Good to be here, David. Yeah, great to chat. It, it, what, how did you get from Brighton to Sinaloa? Like, <laughs> how does a good little English guy like you get from Brighton yeah, yeah. to Sinaloa? Quite a journey. Um, I began, I left England for, for Mexico when I was 27. So this is in the year 2000. Um, and I wanted to get into journalism and I had the dream of being a foreign correspondent. And I realized then I talked to other people who got into being a foreign journalist. And one way then, because um, I get a lot of people asking now, like young journalists asking now, how do I get into this? What's the way to, you know, I want to do this stuff. And the options now are more difficult, but at the time, there were quite a lot of English language newspapers around the world. So the, the, so I got a job in Mexico City at the a paper called The News in Mexico City as a way to start doing reporting. Um, so I was 27. I'd already been, I'd already spent a bit of time traveling and, and been around and, and had various adventures and, and kind of mishaps growing up and stuff. But like, uh, Arrived in Mexico 27, so year 2000, really started working in 2001. And right away, um, I kind of, before I left, had more of ideas, uh, thoughts about the kind of what was happening in the last century in, in Latin America. So I was thinking more about what I'd seen in the movie Salvador by Oliver Stone, you know, where they have, they have the character James Woods is this kind of crazy photographer running around with the gorillas, avoiding the military soldiers and stuff. Um, these are kind of the kind of uh, fantasies I had. But when I arrived, I realized that that was kind of last century. Um, that had okay. kind of gone, um, that kind of guerrilla military dictatorship dynamic had kind of was more last century. And, and, and right away, I just fell right, right away into the drug beat. Um, partly because 
I grew up around a lot of drugs in Brighton, <laughs> the Brighton area, <laughs> which we talk about. It's a big drug-taking place. Had a few friends who died of heroin overdoses. Um, you know, a lot of drug culture growing up. So for me, it was very interesting right away to make that link between being from a drug-consuming place and the drug traffickers, the drug producers. Um, but also it was like a big riddle, like a big mystery, like who are these guys? You know, why do I hear their names in songs? How come they keep escaping? How come these, you know, this guy, just as I arrived there, El Chapo Guzman escaped from a top security prison. It's like, you know, who are these people? And and it just went on from there. I planned to be in Mexico a couple of years, and now it's been 20 years, uh, and I'm still here. You still live uh, You still live in uh, in Mexico City, right? Yeah, yeah, I still live here in Mexico City. I know. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard you speak Spanish, man. Uh, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. <laughs> this bloke from Brighton, like, blows me away. I, I was very impressed, very impressed. Did you learn that quick? Well, I, I originally learned it in Spain. Uh, before I even came to Mexico, I lived in Spain, uh, for a year. And so I originally learned the, oye, tío, pero coño, tío, una cerveza, tío. You know, that was the, the Spanish I learned. And in fact, when I very first arrived in Mexico, you know, on my second night in Mexico, I went to this party in a neighborhood called the Moctezuma in Mexico, Mexico City. And it was just like, you know, all these people, you know, in a totally different world from Spain, obviously. And, you know, people come and see, saying, Okay, on the way, que paso way, vamos a chupar chelo way, vamos a fumar mota way. It was like totally different, you know, right away flipping between there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a beautiful language, and I think it's 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 a it, it opens up so many doors because you've got a whole continent here, you know, with you know with Spanish and Portuguese. So that was so, well. so that was two thousand that you went to Mexico City. And your yeah, first exactly. book, Narco, um, came out in 2011, right? Yeah. So, so that means that you must have immersed yourself pretty quickly in that underworld. Um, that we is there a difference between a narco state and a cartel? Are they this? Are they interchangeable, or is there or is there a tangible difference? So the uh, the cartel kind of refers to the organization. The word originally came out of Colombia. Uh, back in the 80s, OPEC was big in the news at the time, you know, the oil mm -hmm. producing and exporting countries. So because OPEC was big in the news um, and it was like they were like an oil producing cartel, it became something of the cocaine cartels. Now, it's it's not totally clear if it was really invented by the Colombian traffickers, like we're a cartel, or if it was invented by the DEA agents actually saying in, in their, you know, in their stuff, this is a cartel, this is an organization. Certainly, I think in some of the cases in Mexico and some of the early cases, like the Guadalajara cartel, I think that name was given to them by DA agents at the time. So this is the Guadalajara cartel. That's what we're going to call this organization. But then over the years, the name has become more and more common and used by the gangsters themselves. So these days, you, you know, forward... 35 years, you've got so much territory in Mexico marked out by different cartels. So you have the Gulf Cartel controlling a bunch of territory just south of Texas in Tamaulipas. You've got them controlling a bunch of territory. Then you've got a very clear border, and then it becomes the Northeast Cartel. Um, and you know, and they, they, that's what they call themselves, and this is how they 
and define the narco state is when you can kind of prefer when you re, people refer to like a state like a government captured by drug traffickers and that's a bit more of a controversial term some people refer to mexico as a country as a narco state or venezuela as a narco state or going back in in the day bolivia was you know talking about a government going back to the 1970s 80s a narco state okay that's that's helpful so cartels exist in narco states but whether a narco state is a narco state or not that's something that you know we can we you know people can argue over right but it can also be taken pejoratively by whoever that's being aimed at it's interesting though that cartels it, it's like a nickname you know did you give yourself the nickname or did somebody give you the nickname right so uh, we're not sure if the deas began to call them cartels or they called themselves cartels after opec right yeah, 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 but it was around that time. So it was, I mean, like, if you look at some of the the uh, statements from Pablo Escobar, um, and I met his son. I've met his son, who's an interesting character, you know, who, who, who's a public figure, really, his son now, um, and talked about the experience. You know, he was seventeen when his when his father was killed. But Pablo Escobar uh, back then, you know, how he made these statements. You know, cocaine's the atomic bomb. I'm going to drop on the United States and these kind of things. So we had these whole, you know, these kind of discourse of so. So it wouldn't surprise me if it was Escobar or the Medellin traffickers. Yeah. That made like we're as big as oil. Yeah, yeah, we're exactly we're, we're as big yeah. as oil. We're a yeah. cartel. I like that. That's not bad. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah, but narco states. I mean, there's certainly questions about it. You know, when in Mexico, when you have uh, the former public security secretary um, uh, who was in the administration of 2006 to 2012 from Mexico is currently in the United States on drug trafficking charges. So, in fact, the current and the president now said, um, well, if he was involved in drug trafficking, it was almost like it was a narco state. So it, the president now himself was like using this word narco state about Mexico, yeah, yeah. but saying the last government was like a narco state and I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the enforcement state. So, yeah. um so how does a guy, how, how do you, if you're, you know, get a little, little melt, uh, from Brighton, yeah. still have the accent. Um, yeah. how do you like, do you call a guy? Like, how do you get involved? Like, how do you immerse yourself in that life? Um, like where do you, I mean, I, I'm assuming they're not listed in the phone book in those days. Like, yeah. how did you do that? What did you do? And, and how did you gain their trust so that you could get in there to, to write these stories? I'm really, really curious about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's a very long process. I um, mean, like a lot of things um, in journalism, um, you know, you've got to work in you know, a hard and a beat a lot of years. So, so I arrived. In, I started working in Mexico in 2001, uh, and you know, first of all, would do these. You know, I might do stories. You know, these early stories about crack cocaine in Mexico City and stuff. Um, and then connecting. You know, connected then to a legendary Mexican journalist from Tijuana called Jesus Blanconelas, who who's now passed away. But he he, he survived the shooting. He survived four bullets um, in, in in Tijuana. I used to call him a lot, um, and he had these funny um, comparisons that he he he'd he was he was a sports journalist before he became like a narco journalist. So he'd make these baseball comparisons. Um, so I'd phone him up and say, "Jesus, you know who's this uh, this this drug trafficker they've arrested?" And he'd say, 
uh, he could call me Grillo. So when I, when I, Grillo is how I pronounce it growing up, but Grillo, <laughs> he'd call me. So Grillo, uh, that, um, that, that guy they arrested, you know, he'd be like in the minor leagues. And I'd, I'd be like, who, who about this guy? This guy, Miles Ambada. And he'd go, Miles Ambada, he'd be playing for the New York Yankees. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was the code. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of comparisons he made. So I <laughs> you know, um, you know, so I started, you know, getting in touch and, and, and getting things. And then there was a period in 2004 to 2005, and I was actually got a job working for the Houston Chronicle. So, hmm. you know, you've got Houston roots there. Yeah, my relatives are there. Yeah, yeah, Houston Chronicle. I started uh, writing from Mexico for them alongside a bureau chief in Mexico, a guy called Dudley Outhouse, who's a, a legendary reporter. And around then, a bunch of bodies started turning up in the city of Nuevo Laredo over the border from Laredo, Texas. Sure. So I flew up there about six times over this, this long, hot summer. And started, you know, trying to find out what was going on there. And, and that really was the beginning of when things started going really crazy in Mexico with the violence. Because what we saw there was the cartels were not only fighting like they used to with guys with shaved, shaved heads and tattoos and like pistols and knives. This was like guys in military gear and bulletproof jackets and helmets and radios and AK-47s and AR-15s. And that was because one of the cartels there, the Gulf Cartel at the time, had recruited these former military guys, the Setas, who were guys from the Mexican Special Forces military. And they were fronting off against the Sinaloa Cartel, who began sending in these gang bangers, these gang type guys. And you started seeing, you know, real piles of bodies. So if I could, if I Yoink, if I can just go back there. So the Zetas, right? Those were yeah. the those were the good guys that were fighting the bad guys, right? But yeah. then they all left the good yeah. side and yeah. went to the bad side. Exactly. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And so they they were recruited by the Gulf Cartel. Yes, yes. So a guy called Osel Cardenas, uh-huh. who was a, a Gulf Cartel boss, he has a nickname, the Friend Killer. Apparently he, he nice. killed his friend. That's a tough. That's a tough. Don't get invited to those dinner parties. <laughs> yeah. The friend killer. The friend killer. I think he killed his friend because he liked the friend's wife. Is, is the story? Doesn't okay. It? Um, so uh, he recruited um, these these guys, and they had these radio codes they'd use in in, in the Mexican military. So set that is obviously the the Spanish mm-hmm. letter Z. So they would say in the, in the Mexican special forces they'd have these set codes. So that these very the original 14 guys, like first the first guy came who became known as Seta One, Z1. And then he recruited a bunch more of his old former colleagues in the military, recruited them over, and then they originally had 14 of these guys. And they all had Z code, Z1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, up to 14. They recruited more, they got to about uh Z40. And this is while they're still in the Mexican military, right? They 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 they, they, def- they defected. Most of them just like left the Mexican military and went full time. Oh, okay, the- okay, got it. So, so now they're that's when they're doing the codes, the Z codes, right? Is now yeah. when they're the Gulf Cartel. Exactly. Yeah. So they began as this kind of special elite bodyguard for Osel Cardenas, and some of them are around where they threatened an FBI agent. There's an FBI agent from from Texas. 
uh, and a DA agent who were in a car in, in Matamoros and they got threatened by a bunch of these guys. It's a crazy story. You can find these, these, these agents that are still around there in, in Texas. Um, but anyway, these, these, um, they began as this kind of private bodyguard and then grew up bigger and bigger, recruited more and more people. So they fought off the Sinaloa cartel in, in Nuevo Laredo. But anyway, going back to myself, so I was up there. I mean, this is, you know, now I understand this was happening this now, but at the time I was a young reporter trying to make sense of this um, with pressure from editors in, in Houston wanting, wanting copy, just you know, wanting to get stuff in the paper. <laughs> so I was like, how, how do I do this? So you, I started off going to authorities, you know, going to the police there, and you find the police are very, you know, not very helpful. You know, I can sometimes ambush them, um, you know, find the some like police detective in some place and like, get him in a corner and stick a, a tape recorder in his, in his face and say, you know, give me something. But they're not really helpful. Um, so I started looking for different things. So one you know, technique, I thought, uh, why don't I try hang around with drug addicts? Ah, drug yeah, addicts well, yeah. must yeah. know something about drug dealers. Um, and like I said, I grew up, you know, I grew up in, in Brighton. There's a lot of degenerate right. drug addicts. So I started going to these rehab centers and hang out with which a lot of them are very Christian evangelical rehab centers there. And then trying to find people there who had experience dealing, who knew cartel stuff. And then um, I also then met a, uh, this is going back to those days, I met a, a guy who was a hustler in uh, Boys Town, what's known as Boys Town, Nuevo Laredo. Oh, which is a there big, is? Yeah, a big four blocks by four blocks prostitution area. Oh, okay. Uh, and known as Boys Town here. Yeah. Okay. It's not, 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 not a gay, not a gay, it's uh yeah, prostitution. And he was somebody, he was um he knew a lot about the 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 setas and, and, and the organizations and stuff. Then I started heading into um prisons, started kind of getting in, going into the into the jail there, trying to talk to inmates. Uh and I mean, we you know while I was doing this, this stuff was escalating. So I interviewed one guy, um, who was a guy called Alejandro Domingos, Domingos Cuello, who was uh, a head of the Chamber of Commerce at the time. And then he became the police chief. And two weeks after, two weeks after I interview, interviewed him, he swore in as the police chief. And they asked him at the time, they said, um, are you scared? So no, no, I'm not scared. It's the corrupt people who, 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 who are scared, should be scared. And then six hours after he gave that statement, he was shot dead. <laughs> Uh, and, and that was like one of the weird signs of like, wow, something really strange is going on here. This is not like before. We've had drug, drug trafficking for a long time, but something weird is going. There's rumblings here of, of, of this thing's going to get really out of control. And um, yeah, then there's the kind of service. The years went on. I mean, you know, now that's 15 years ago. As the years went on, you know, found more and more ways, um, connections with people in these areas. Um, to be able to go up to the mountains, to Chapa Guzman's village, to meet members of his family, to meet other family members, to meet active cartel members when they're still outside and operating, uh, people in prison, and, and also traveling around Latin America as well, talking to other gang members. So, Yohan, so if I'm a cartel member or if I am a cartel leader, like, what's the benefit for me to talk to you? Because don't I risk that you're going to blow my cover, that you're going to blow my operations, that you're going to give away some of, you know, the state secrets here? Like, why would I want to talk to you? Yeah, some of them, like, there's a lot of different levels of, of gangsters. 
Um, so, I mean, like, there's, there's so many different stories. Um, so sometimes, you know, you, you, I get people contacting me saying, like, um, some of them are like out, the people are out the game. They've been out the game for years. Some of them have got ideas. They want to write their own books. They got, they want to become like, they, they see kind of stuff and they see, oh, well, how come this gangster wrote his book and got a film made about him and now he's kind of become, because that happens, you know, you get a lot of ex-criminals, you know, making money that way as well. Some of them are kind of contact and, and they're like, or they're in prison, you know, I've, I've, you know, and contacted by people in prison in the United States and they, they're sitting around with nothing to do. Um, you know, for hours and hours, since it's like contact a journalist, you know, can we maybe, you know, what can I, you know, talk about my story? Um, some have phones in their prisons still. They have like, and even in US prisons have phones and internet so they can still, you know, hook up and talk to you and stuff. Some of them, you know, talking, phoning into prisons by phones and then going and visiting. And then you've got um, active cartel people in Mexico. So I think that's, you know, you're, you're really asking about. So, they have a lot, some of them in certain areas will have journalists on their payroll. Yeah. Local journalists on their payroll. Now there's there are reasons for this. Uh journalists for them are useful. They are um in these scenes, they're like eyes and ears that can be there on the streets for them. So they have a a a a, a, a community, you know, a way of like you have a, a, a photographer on a scene that can be phoning up and giving information to the cartel if it's a military raid or military operations or that kind of thing. Um, they also extremely violent and bullying of Mexican journalists. So for a lot of Mexican newspaper editors, Mexican TV stations, Mexican radios in these smaller towns, not so much in the capital of Mexico City, but in Sinaloa, in Veracruz, in Tamaulipas, in Guerrero, in Michoacán, in all these places, they're under a lot of pressure being bullied very hard by the cartel people, phoning them up, telling them to print stuff, not to print stuff. So they feel that they want um, to have like an edge in, in, in the paper in, in controlling the news. Now, some of them actually, when they kind of want to talk or, or, or look at kind of TV and stuff, they want the name of their group kind of out there. Okay. They quite like, they have a certain level of pride of their group being out there. So you get funny situations, you know, because you say like, um, you know, you talk to them from one group and they're like, no, you know, you know we're, um, you know, we're much crazier than they are. Um, I even remember when, um, talking about the gang members, um, when Trump used to name check MS-13 gang. Mm-hmm. And I was in Honduras and I talked to a leader of the opposite, Barrio 18, 18th Street gang about this, about him calling them terrorists, the MS-13. What do you think about the fact that he calls the MS-13 terrorists? And he was like, you think those guys are crazy? You know, we're much more crazy than those guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I guess the bottom line, Yon, is that even... Uh, Cartels have uh, PR plans and messaging, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They got their PR game and their messaging, and they got that's pretty amazing. I never, I never really put it thought of it that way. Yeah, the other thing is, I mean, like when when you do film or or when you do um, interview any kind of gangsters, you've got to be very protective of of 
you know, not giving information away. Now, actually, when you talk to them, if I talk to a cartel guy and I say, you know, talk about people you've murdered, um, talk about what it's like for you, talk about how you got into this as a kid, talk about what your ideas of escape are, these kind of things. It's a lot of information. It's kind of fascinating information for the outside world. But actually, that's not giving away things that really hurt them. That's not giving away real, like, operational stuff. What they're really concerned about is, you know, names of corrupt officials they work with, um, okay. addresses of safe houses, um, these kind of things. So... so well, so how much? So how much of let, let's take one for example, El Chapo. Mm. How much of El Chapo's fame was based upon this type of PR and, and messaging, and just his gangs getting his name, you know, his folks getting his name out there in the press a lot? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a great point. I mean, it was kind of like a snowball effect with El Chapo. So with El Chapo, there's really a mythology around El Chapo Guzman. Now he's without doubt the most famous or infamous drug trafficker that's come out of Mexico ever. Um, I would say he's in the three most infamous gangsters of, of all time, really. You know, you're Al Capone, Pablo Escobar, and El Chapo. There's no one else, really, I think, on that level of, of infamy. So, but he's not necessarily the richest drug trafficker in Mexico. Now, that's very, very hard to know. He's not necessarily the drug trafficker who's killed the most people. He's not necessarily the drug trafficker who had the most hitmen under his command, but he had the most infamy. Right. So now why was that now? Like he escaped from two top security prisons. You know, that made him famous. His name was in so many songs. There's this like literally thousands of these drug ballads. Yeah. Corridos. Corridos. Yeah. About El Chapo. So, He's just in like song after song after song. Um, and gangsters pay the singers to sing about them. Very <laughs> so open, more PR. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, very, this is very open. Very, the yeah. singers are very open about this. You go to Sinaloa and talk to the drug ballad guys, the drug ballad uh -huh. ideas, and you say, um, you know, how much do you charge to write? You know, if, if I were to write a song about me, how much would you charge? They will have their price, and it could be $1,000, could be $10,000. Then you've got some of these really, really big famous bands. They've also got, you know, if you look at some of these big famous... Los Tigres del Norte? Los Tigres del Norte, I think, I think they're so big that they wouldn't... It'd be very hard to pay them to write a song about okay. somebody these days, I think. But write anyone else below them, basically. Okay. Anyone else wow. below them. Um, like... Uh, and they've got their very famous song, though, from the, from the 90s called The Boss of Bosses, El Jefe de Jefes, which is the real famous drug battle. There's a debate about exactly who that's really that's about well. that song. And I'm not sure exactly how that song was written, but like, but like what, you know, everyone else below them, you've got them, you know, writing very clear songs with very clear name messages and, 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 and kind of, you know, um, so El Chapo, um, then the, the newspapers, you know, the media themselves picking up on him and then him meeting Sean Penn, you know, right. Sean Penn flying down there yeah. Kate de Castillo, the, uh, the that's actress, right. and then him meeting them, so then that made him even more famous. And then um, the books about him, the TV series, I mean, you know, Netflix, uh, El Chapo series, ne you know, Chapo's a character in Narcos. So just more and more and more stuff made him so, and then his trial, 
where then the Americans say, because he's so famous, we've got to put 54 witnesses and we're going to put in 14 you know, colleagues and three-month trials. So then again, it all just makes him you know, bigger and bigger name. Well, well, it's interesting because I, I have a saying that I always use that I stole from someone. I'm sure it's, yeah. I'm sure it's a, a common phrase, but I always say it's the whale that surfaces that gets harpooned. And, right. um, you know, somewhere under the water, there's probably a whale twice as big, but it just doesn't surface. And I, I have a feeling that in the cartel world, that's probably the case. I heard that there's somebody in Mayo um, who worked yeah. with Chapo. Yeah. Um, might even be his boss, but he just yeah. keeps a low profile, doesn't surface. Um, it, are, are there examples of that that come to mind? Obviously, yeah, you mean, how, how are you going to know if they don't come public, right? If they stay below the radar, but do you have the feeling too that there are probably people like that in the cartel world? Well, so Elmanel Mayo, as you mentioned, El, El Mayo is a big, big uh, figure. And yeah, there was... Um, the argument, in fact, made by the defense lawyers of El Chapo at the trial, which I went to some of that trial in, in, in New York, and, and he had these three lawyers who made you know, $3 million out of that case, and uh, very interesting characters. They were interesting characters, these lawyers. Uh, but uh, they, they, their defense was, well, um, you know, really, you saying this guy El Chapo is the head of this conspiracy? Or how about this guy El Maya? Is he really the senior partner? And they, it might that might well be the case. Um, I, I think a lot of the cartels tend to organize in different ways. There's different models I've seen with different cartels. So the way that you know Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel organized was different from the way the Sinaloa cartel is, or the Cali cartel, or the Setas, or La Familia Michoacana, or the whereas there's different mechanisms you see in different ways. They operate. But in the Sinaloa cartel, which is um, really like a network of drug traffickers, and these are, this is where drug trafficking began in Mexico uh, 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. Hmm. And in many ways, I see this as a big association of drug traffickers, the Sinaloa cartel. So like you have in California, the association of wine growers, maybe? Is that mm -hmm. it? Sure. Some yeah. of that. Um, it's like the association of drug traffickers is like Sinaloa cartel. So you've got a bunch of different producers, a bunch of, you know, you know, loads of people who, 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 you know, who make heroin or make crystal meth or, and then you've got people who are tran transporters and all these different people will come into the cartel. And El Chapo was the public face of that cartel. Now having a public face, you know, it does serve them a purpose because then they, want to control a territory which they need for, to move drugs through, it helps to have the name of El Chapo, which then you see at these, you know, you know a bunch of bodies are left um, on the street and there's a note there saying, attention, El Chapo. Or, sorry, attentively, El Chapo. <laughs> attentively. Um, <laughs> that's the kind of way they sign these, these notes. <laughs> um, so, so then, you know, you have that kind of public face. Now, other figures as well, for a while, like there were so many of these big names we knew about, um, the, who's running, running the Whitest Cartel, who's running the Gulf Cartel. These were all these kind of names you know, and there's a big list made of going after them. After, over various years, most of these guys were imprisoned or shot dead. So nowadays, we don't really know 
a lot of who's running these cartels. So there's definitely whales there we don't know about right now. I mean, who really is running the whitest cartel now? There was a guy called the Viceroy, known as the Viceroy, running it after the after his brother, the Lord of the Skies, was. Yeah, I love uh, these names. Yeah, supposedly died in a, in a plastic surgery accident. Then his brother, the Viceroy, took over. He was he was arrested. Now, who really runs that cartel? Who knows? No, I don't know. Um, so, so a lot of. So, so I did want to get onto the organization, how these are organized, because I'm very fascinated by that. And I think other people are too, like how, I mean, you've already talked about that association. But one of the things that I wanted to touch on before we left this was, so, because we're on the PR and the messaging and the PR campaigns, Netflix, right? So Netflix yeah. has had these shows, you know, El Chapo, they did, you know, Pablo Escobar, uh, Narcos. Do the cartels sit around and watch this? Um, do they critique it? Do they like it? Do they feel that, Hey, you know what? This is a little too much, uh, of a, of, of sunlight on us here. Um, and how about the victims of the cartels? Do they yeah. watch these in these villages and, you know, in, in Michoacan and Sinaloa? So it, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So first of all, a lot of the gangsters do watch these TV series, uh, like, I mean, I talked to Pablo Escobar's son. He'd seen these TV series and he was like, yeah, I've seen them all and they're all wrong and I'm going to make the, the right one. Um, I talked to a Setas, um, quite a high-ranking Setas um, commander who'd seen some of these things and were like, yeah, they're all talking about the Sinaloans, you know, but what about us? You know, we're much, you know, why are we not being shown? <laughs> Here we go again. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. get back to that. And El Chapo... Um, saw the Queen of the South, which was this one um, with Kate de Castillo. He saw that, um, which is, now that's made very much like a regular Mexican soap opera, kind of right. a, a novella, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to kind of aiming for a bit, you know, historical references. And it's made much more just like it could be, um, you know, like these traditional soap operas. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, he, he watched that because he was, you know, he liked Castillo and they started that back and forth because he knew her from watching that TV series. So on one side, yeah, they watched some of these TV series. Uh, the victims, that's a very good point. So in Mexico, there's been in the last 12 years, um, more than 300,000 murders in Mexico. How many? More than 300,000 murders in Mexico. Now, if you compare that to the United States, Population-wise, that would be you know cl close to a million murders in the United States, because the population in Mexico is you know 130 million compared to 330 million in the in the US now. The population right now. So, of those 300,000 murders, and there's also like about 70,000 people who are reported as disappeared right. or missing in Mexico right now as well. Of those, it's difficult to know how many of those are killed by the cartels or the security forces fighting the cartels because you have the Mexican military, the Mexican Marines, the Mexican Federal Police, the Mexican State Police, and all of these security forces fighting them. And they can leave a lot of bodies as well. So it's hard to know the exact number, but there were some estimates made in certain years that about two-thirds of the deaths in Mexico are caused 
by this conflict in some way. So it could be a couple of hundred thousand, 200,000 people killed in 12 years, plus tens of thousands disappeared. Now, when you talk to a lot of the families, now there's some of them, you know, the, the long time there was this idea, it's bad guys killing bad guys. People who were killed must have been up to something. But then it became more and more clear that loads of completely innocent people have been murdered in this conflict. So you just got people who were killed for being in the wrong place at the wrong right. time. Um, you know, I, I've been at scenes where I've been, at the, I went to a lot of these, these, I've done a lot of the cop reporting arriving at the, just the shoot, you know, the murder victims. Um, I've been at scenes where they've just like attacked a car to kill somebody and then just done 500 bullets. And then the guy selling tacos on the side of the street also gets killed. And the woman in the car behind also gets killed. So you get just, you know, shots being sprayed, but you also get members of these cartels acting in very, very evil ways, um, just like going after, you know, gunmen for these cartels, kidnapping regular people, uh, murdering people just for any reason. Yeah. yeah. Money on the side. So, yeah, so so you get like a lot of victims and, and those people get upset by the glorification of these cartels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that I, I, I think I kind of, I feel for them because I don't know if Netflix takes any percentage of the money that they make off of these shows like Narcos and Pablo Escobar and says, Hey, we're going to send this to a fund to help the victims. Right. Yeah, yeah, or the yeah, families. Yeah, yeah. Cause you know, yeah. kidnapping is a big deal there too. And those people haven't done anything. They're just associated with someone who's suspected because cartels don't have courts. You know, yeah. it's like you're guilty. Um, so I, I, I do. I have problems with the glorification that a lot of these companies make and the money that they make off of the off of the death and misery of some of these poor, innocent people down in Mexico. Um, I just haven't heard many people talk about it. Yeah, so, no, it's, it's certainly an issue. Uh, and uh, and like there was um, I mean, like, you know, there's various I mean, particularly these groups of mothers. Um, who, that's one of the, the strongest voices of victims, of the mothers of, of people who have been killed or disappeared. And there's so many, there's like many, many of these have formed these, these like uh, groups, um, collectives, which will go out looking for their children who have disappeared. And I talked to one mother, for example, I've talked to you know, many of these, but one mother, uh, for example, in the state of Veracruz, whose son worked in the, Veracruz is a big port in Mexico, and her son worked in customs in the port. So it might have been that he was targeted for some reason because, you know, he didn't allow something to go through or something, you know, like, um, or, or, or who knows. Uh, but anyway, he was he was in, in the house with his girlfriend, in his girlfriend's parents' house. A bunch of guys with guns just came in and were like, you're coming with us. And he was in, in his 20s at the time, like 24. Took him away. And the mother just could not, no information, could not find him. This was 2013, I believe, that he went, he, he disappeared. Um, she joined other um, mothers. They were searching, couldn't find anything. She was searching, asking questions. Another of her sons was threatened because she was just carrying on the search. He was threatened and beaten, and people said to her, like, tell your mum to leave this alone. And she told him, leave the country, I'm going to carry on looking. You know, I can't, I can't let this go. Because she's got no closure. She doesn't know. Yeah. She's always got the idea 
is he still alive? Is he still somewhere being held in a mm-hmm. safe house somewhere? You know, what's happened to him? I can't let this go. So she carried on and on. Um, and then there was a various, on Mother's Day, they were marching and a guy drove up in a car and he said to them, check this out, and gave them like a map, a drawn map. And they said, Here, here's where some bodies are buried. And they, this was 2017. They went to the police and the authorities and said, we've got information and, and the police authorities still wouldn't do anything about it. You know, wouldn't do anything. So they went there and just started digging up this field, this cow field. And they started finding these bodies. Um, and there were 250 bodies found in this, in this mass, the biggest mass grave in, yeah, in yeah. Mass, found in Mexico, 250 mass bodies. And this backs onto a regular housing area in, in like a housing estate of kind of middle-class houses. And in the houses, as they were unearthing the bodies, the stench of the ha- of the bodies came and they, they complained in the house, you know, we've got our kids here. And who... That was 2017. I, I interviewed her that year when they'd found it and they were doing DNA um, comparisons. And finally, two years after that, in 2019, it was confirmed her son was in, among the bodies in that, in that masquerade. Oh, my God. Um, so... So yeah, people like that, and you ask them, what do you think about these TV series um, or, or other things? Um, but I think generally their anger actually is more towards the Mexican government. Sabana. La noche me sirve de sabana. Brillando en clave morse y me invitan para allá. La noche me sirve de sabana. Un camino hecho de estrellas, semáforo la luna. La noche me sirve de sabana. Sale a las siete y media y voy llegando a la una. La